Today, we continue our discussion about the distinctive leadership of Xi Jinping as the leader of the Communist Party in China and of the Chinese state. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to the Real Story segment of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program is broadcast three days each week. We can only keep producing independent, high-quality news analysis and historical perspective because of the support of listeners who do their part by becoming a subscriber to this show. To become a subscriber, go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we continue our discussion about the leadership in China, the leadership of Xi Jinping. We're going to be talking again with Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He is the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. And he is also a writer and activist with the peace organization Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be back. Lots more to talk about. Yes, there is. And we said in part one of this two-part series on Xi Jinping, of course, we had the earlier seven-part series on China's foreign policy. But in our first of these two parts, we sort of framed how Xi Jinping emerged both as an element of change, but also with an element of continuity from the previous leaderships that had, you know, been in power since the Communist Party of China took power in 1949. So first was Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping came next, Zheng Zemin, Hu Jintao, and then starting in 2013, Xi Jinping. And the thesis that we worked from, Ken, was that this really was a remarkably important transition in the leadership. So let's just get started by, again, for the audience, for people who might have missed the last show or it's been a couple of weeks since they heard it, let's just frame in a particular way the difference, the distinction, in short, in brief, and then we'll get into more detail, of Xi Jinping's leadership. The assertion that we made last time was that Xi Jinping's leadership constituted a fairly sharp turn to the left inside of Chinese politics. Let's get started there. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly the way to start and a good way to sort of recap some of the points that we made last time. Although one thing I think, as you just mentioned as well, that it's both a transition, it's both a a visible change in the orientation and the presentation of not just Xi Jinping, but of the work of the party and the direction of of the country. But it's also there are also elements of continuity involved. And I think that dual nature of this changeover is really important. Under Xi Jinping's leadership, 
China has become more self-confident or has behaved in a way that demonstrates its self-confidence. It has been less willing to accommodate to the leadership, if you want to call it that, of the United States, less willing to subordinate itself to the overall global capitalist system. It has been more assertive in terms of charting its own course, both in terms of its domestic development, its domestic economic and social and political life, and in terms of its conduct in the wider world. And Xi Jinping has been sort of the visible face of that process, and so it's very closely associated with his leadership. But it is also a change sort of in style. It's a stylistic change. And I think in some ways that's a really important point to bear in mind that the more overt, the more foregrounded discussion of socialism and the party's mission and the pursuit of common prosperity and terms like this that we're becoming more familiar with, this is a new articulation of what have been deep commitments throughout the whole history of the People's Republic. For a few decades, China took a more low-key kind of bide your time, keep out of the limelight approach, and they felt it was necessary to subordinate themselves more or less to the global system. But that period is over. And Xi Jinping's emergence and his outspoken posture as a socialist, as someone dedicated to building this common prosperity, not just for the people of China, but for the larger global system as well. This is a new and really very refreshing message to hear, but it's bringing out, it's bringing into the open, it's bringing into the foreground, I think, commitments that have underlain China's development for a very long time. A big problem for China with the introduction of the foreign direct investment system, the opening up of China, the allowing a private market to grow, a capitalist market within inside the People's Republic of China, along with and next to or parallel with and partly integrated with as well with the state sector. One of the big problems was corruption. Now, between 2007 and 2012, under Hu Jintao, there were 643,700 internal disciplinary cases. Of those, the number brought to a court trial was 24,000. The number of members of the Central Committee who were put on trial for these kind of charges was six. And the members of the Politburo and above who were also facing criminal trials, criminal proceedings, was two. That's under Hu Jintao, 2007 to 2012. Under the leadership of Xi Jinping in his first term, he's in his second term now, but in his first term between 2013 and 2017, the number of internal disciplinary cases went, again, it was 643,000 between 2007 to 2012. It went to 1,540,000. The number of those charges of people brought to criminal trial was 58,000. The number of central committee members who went on trial was 43. The number of members of Politburo or higher who went on trial was six. So obviously in his first term, the anti-corruption crackdown was very vigorous, very robust. 
it obviously showed that there was a lot of corruption and that was a big problem for the credibility of the party and for the credibility of the social system, which said its goal is ultimately socialism. And at the same time, perhaps those who were the most corrupt were also those who in the main, not exclusively, but in the main, also part of that wing or wings of the party who might be considered more pro-West or more pro-capitalist. Anyway, what's your take on that? Well, I think the anti-corruption campaign has been ongoing. It got off to that tremendous start in the first term, but it has continued and carried on with targets all up and down the hierarchy, down through his second term as well. And, you know, corruption has been a structural challenge for developing countries in general and for China in particular, especially during the reform era, especially once the party you know, made the decision at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s to utilize market mechanisms in the process of developing the economy. That has achieved great things, but it has also led to a number of serious problems, of which corruption is perhaps one of the greatest. So it's a contradiction that has plagued the reform period and plagued China's development. But it's one which certainly Xi Jinping has demonstrated a very strong commitment to addressing. You know, the temptations, the message that is sort of implicit in the use of markets is, you know, that individuals should seek to advance their own interests. And that's something that can be useful, can be harnessed in useful ways in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of innovation and creativity and economic activities and all that. But it can also be something that is subject to abuse. And I think that we've seen a lot of that, of people in positions of power and positions of public responsibility, whether in the party or in the government, using those positions to enrich themselves, to advance their prestige, their social standing, whatever. And that's not good. That's not acceptable. That's not what the project is all about. So addressing that and in the vigorous way that the party and the government have been doing under Xi Jinping's leadership is part and parcel of his overall recommitment to the process of socialist development, to the objectives. Xi Jinping likes to talk about remembering the original mission of the party, the original mission of the revolution, to improve the lives and the livelihoods of the Chinese people. And that corruption siphons that off, corruption steals from the people. And so making that the focus of such an energetic campaign, an ongoing campaign, I think is really critical to having people take his overall program much more seriously. The Wall Street Journal has an article on September 20th of this year, just about a week ago, I really encourage people to read it. I normally don't encourage people to read the Wall Street Journal. I tell them, <laughs> read Liberation News, but you have to read what the ruling class is thinking, so you need to read the papers, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Financial Times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the headline. It's a very long article, and I would say it's almost a hysterical article. The headline, Xi Jinping aims to rein in Chinese capitalism Hue, H-E-W, Hue to Mao's socialist vision, going beyond curbing tech giants, he wants the Communist Party to steer flows of money and set tighter limits on profit making. Okay, so that's the headline. 
here's something that in the article, which really I hadn't seen myself. You may have, because of course you speak the language and you're truly an expert on the subject. But in the article, and the Wall Street Journal went out of its way to make this point, a 2018 article in the party's main theoretical journal, Chosure, or Seeking Truth, laid bare his belief, quote, China's practice shows that once the socialist transformation is completed, the basic socialist system with public ownership as the main body is established and state capitalism as a transitional economic form will complete its historical mission and withdraw from the historical stage. So these are very important words, very important words, because anyone familiar with Lenin's formulation, say, about the new economic policy that was introduced in order to also foster the development of the means of production when want and hunger were stalking Russia three years after the revolution, the new economic policy, Lenin, under his leadership, the Russian Soviet system invited foreign capitalists to come into Russia. They would offer them concessions, meaning that they could make lots of money and they were going to allow what were called the NEP men, NEP, New Economic Policy Men, meaning the, the middle market, the development of a capitalist class in Russia. And Lenin called that state capitalism. But he got in a big political argument with Bukharin at that time. This when Bukharin was in his leftist stage, he moved into the rightist camp rightist within the communist sense of the term rightist a few years later. But Bukharin was saying there's no such thing as state capitalism except state capitalism. And Lenin was making the argument, no, we, meaning the proletariat and the party, have control of the state, but we need to develop state capitalism as a means of development because we, the state, can't give the peasants and the farmers and the other parts of the economy, what they need to develop the economy, we don't have the resources to give. And so we'll end up just taking. And that's not the basis for political stability. So the market, sort of the commodity production or small commodity production, or even larger scale commodity production becomes spontaneous. The state doesn't have to oversee that. When people can make profits, they find a way to make profits. And that generates and incentivizes economic production, even though it leads to inequality and class divisions, et cetera, et cetera. So Lenin's making the argument, state capitalism was a necessary step backwards away from socialism to develop the means of production so that they could take the next step forward towards public ownership. Now, China's always used the language, we are developing socialism with Chinese characteristics. And I often ask people who study this topic, I said, isn't that a lot like Lenin's new economic policy? And a lot of people tell me or have told me, no, this is different because this is really a new sort of method or idea or theory about socialist development that the Chinese have implemented. But if this is true. If Seeking Truth, the magazine, the party's theoretical journal, has Xi Jinping saying that once the socialist transformation is completed, the basic socialist system with public ownership as the main body is established and state capitalism as a transitional economic form will complete 
its historical mission and withdraw from the historical stage, that means Xi Jinping is intending for the party at some point, maybe in the not too distant future, maybe in the next three decades or so, maybe more, who knows, but where they're going is towards public ownership. In other words, a complete socialist transformation of the economy. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, in fact, that has been the objective of the reform policies since they were instituted back at the beginning of the 1980s. Just at the very beginning of that article, there's another great little quote in which the Wall Street Journal, the writer, says that what Xi Jinping is doing is trying to roll back China's decades-long evolution towards Western-style capitalism. And I think that that's a really critical phrase because I think it reflects very clearly the mentality that has been pervasive among Western elites, especially American political and some economic leaders and even within academia, that that's what's been going on in China, that China has been evolving, has been the way they would think of it, progressing along a path that was going to lead to China becoming just another capitalist country within the overall global capitalist system. And so Xi Jinping's moves now, this idea, as the headline says, of trying to rein in Chinese capitalism and hew to Mao's socialist vision, this is seen by the Wall Street Journal as a radical break, as he's trying to turn back the tide of history or something like that. But I think that's a fundamental misreading. I think that as I suggested in the opening, that you know Xi Jinping is able at this point to talk about these things, to put this information, this awareness out in public. He can say, you know what? We are really serious about this socialism business. This is what we're doing. And you know they haven't made any bones about this. They've said all along that the purpose of market reforms was to develop the productive economy and that when that process reached a certain point, a point of what the Chinese sometimes call a moderately prosperous society, it would be possible then to begin, and we have to be very clear that we're only talking about the beginning stages of a long process, but to begin to guide that new social wealth, which has been accumulated in the process of reform, into more equitable, more socially beneficial channels. You know, this idea that there are private capital in China, there are capitalists, there are businessmen in China, and they've been making a lot of money. And that's been seen as a necessary feature, a necessary evil, I suppose we might say, that is attendant upon this reform campaign. Deng Xiaoping himself said, you know, it's glorious to get rich, but some people are going to get rich first. And what he meant by that was exactly this. There will be inequality. There will be a period where there's going to be a differentiation and some people are going to wind up, you know, ahead of the curve. But now China has reached a point where it can begin to rein that in. And the Wall Street Journal is absolutely right in that headline. That's exactly what he wants to do is rein in those capitalist elements within the Chinese economy. That's not going to happen overnight. These measures that are being taken now are important and significant, but they're not going to, you know, yield in six months or a year to some new socialist paradise. This is going to be a long 
long-term process of transformation. There's going to be advances. There'll probably be some retreats. It's a, a challenging crossing the river by feeling the rocks kind of process. But it's clearly what Xi Jinping's commitment is. It's clearly what the Communist Party under his leadership is dedicated to. And it seems to be in line with the hopes and the aspirations of the vast majority of the Chinese people. And I think that that's the bottom line that we always need to keep in mind. Ken, I want to move our discussion now to another hallmark of the Xi Jinping leadership, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm looking at the Council on Foreign Relations. Their magazine, of course, is Foreign Affairs. At one time, Council on Foreign Relations was the number one sort of non-governmental think tank that you know you had to get the approval of the Council on Foreign Relations to become Secretary of State or maybe Secretary of the Treasury. The Council on Foreign Relations sort of picked Jimmy Carter at the recommendation of Big New Brzezinski. Jimmy Carter was an unknown governor, pretty unknown on the national scene from Georgia, as the post-Nixon era U.S. government. They needed a change of pace. Anyway, it's not as influential as it was once, at least in my opinion, but it's still not an unimportant entity within ruling class politics. Here's what they say about the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative, reminiscent of the Silk Road, is a massive infrastructure project that would stretch from East Asia to Europe. Some analysts see the project as a disturbing expansion of Chinese power, and the United States has struggled to offer a competing vision. The initiative has stoked opposition in some countries involved in Belt and Road that have taken on high levels of debt. Now, let's just kind of get started here. President Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative during an official visit or visits to Kazakhstan and Indonesia. That was in 2013 when he came in as the leader of China. The plan was two-pronged. There was the overland Silk Road economic belt And the second was a maritime Silk Road. The two were collectively referred to first as the One Belt, One Road Initiative, but eventually became known as the Belt and Road Initiative. A huge part of the world is now participating in the second version of globalization, the Chinese version of globalization, and that's the Belt and Road Initiative. Yes, there are something like 139 or 140 countries now that have signed on in to different degrees have become participants in this overall massive project of development. And I think, you know, the Belt and Road it gets portrayed in Western mainstream media often as sort of Chinese neo-imperialism or even neo-colonialism it's sometimes denounced as. And the mention that you made of these allegations that China is entrapping countries in debt, there's a lot of criticism or a lot of negative assessment that we hear about the Belt and Road Initiative. And from the perspective of the United States, which has been the dominant power in global economic affairs really since the end of World War II, and which is used to 
setting the terms and as Secretary of State Blinken likes to always refer to it, you know, having a rules-based international order, so long as it's the United States that makes up the rules for the United States, that's normal. They take that as almost as a sort of natural order of things that the United States just ought to be the leading power in the world and everybody should get with the program. And if people would just get along and go along, then everything would be great and America would continue to be rich and powerful while everybody else you know, helped it along. But that's not a system that's designed to improve the lives of other people around the world. The Belt and Road Initiative, I think, you know, needs to be understood not as a Chinese giveaway. It's not, you know, this isn't some massive global philanthropic enterprise. This is a developmental vision, a developmental project, which will be greatly beneficial to China. Certainly, it will help China to continue its own course of economic development, but it will do so in a way that is interactive in a kind of dialectical way with other developing countries, other countries around the world that are trying to improve their economies. And they need financing, they need infrastructure, they need technology, they need management skills and things like that. And China is able to provide direct assistance. It's able to provide modeling. It's able to serve as a market destination for exports from these other countries. And it's able to serve as a provider of commodities to these economies as they are developing and expanding their own capacities for consumption. So it's a two-way street. We talk about the belt and the road, but it's not a one-way road. You know, It's a road that goes out from China and comes back into China. It's a system that will, as it evolves, and again, this isn't something that you flip a switch and, oh, the whole system is up and running overnight, but as it continues to grow, as it continues to develop, it's going to be beneficial for developing economies in many, many different parts of the world. It's not Initially, it was focused, as you mentioned, on Central Asia, maybe on Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean realm, but it's expanded tremendously to include countries in Africa, Latin America, even some countries in Europe are active participants in this initiative now. So as I say, it's a two-way street. It's certainly going to be beneficial for China. That's why they're doing it. But it's also something that is going to, again, as Xi Jinping talks about, it's a vision of a shared future and one of common prosperity, prosperity developing for both China and for the partner countries in this endeavor. A lot is made about China's focus on Africa. By the way, there's an important newsletter, the Dongsheng newsletter, which I read every week. It's got news from China, voices from China. It's also got a weekly segment called News on China, Africa Weekly, where it talks about what the Belt and Road Initiative or what China's economic and political and health, including COVID vaccines, policy is towards Africa. But it really is an important antidote to the idea or the promotion of the notion which I find so hypocritical coming from Western imperialist countries who deliberately carved up all of Africa and carried out genocide in the Congo and the genocide of the slave trade. And, and then there was the Berlin Conference in 1884, where they literally took a map and dismembered Africa from itself. And within 18 years, with the exception of Ethiopia, 
African self-governance disappeared in every part of Africa, with the exception of Ethiopia, was under the colonial domination of one or another colonial powers. It's really obnoxious and nauseating to hear those governments or those media centers in Western colonial powers talking about Chinese colonialism. But let's just talk about how Africa views Chinese investment, or I don't know if it's the Belt and Road, but it's certainly an important part of China's economic international policy. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there are Belt and Road projects in many African countries, in East Africa, in the West, South Africa, in a lot of different parts of the continent. Chinese investment, Chinese engagement in Africa is a multifaceted phenomenon. It isn't you know, the Belt and Road is one thing. That's a state-sponsored, developmental, infrastructure-oriented program. And, you know, that's building port facilities and roadways and facilitating other kinds of economic development, sometimes building things even like sports stadiums, because that's important, not just economically, but sort of culturally in the development of countries. And so the Belt and Road Initiative is an important aspect of China's relationship with Africa, but it's not the totality of that relationship. There are also many Chinese people who have gone to Africa. China has a long history with Africa, especially East Africa, in terms of the People's Republic providing assistance to newly independent African states in the 1960s, building of course, the famous Tanzan Railway, the railway that ran from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania into Zambia. That was a very important infrastructure project all the way back in the mid-1960s. So China has a long and complex relationship with Africa. And because of that, many Chinese have gone to Africa, to different African countries, basically as individuals, as private citizens. And they've started businesses and they've gotten involved in various kinds of economic activities there. And that has not always been a completely frictionless process. You know, there have been tensions about market share. There have been concerns about profits leaving the country. You know, there are issues that have arisen in the course of that. I think that overall, if we look at China's relationship with Africa, and I should mention that about 10 years ago, we ran a conference here at New Mexico State under the sponsorship of the Confucius Institute, in which we had representatives from a number of African countries. Also, we had a couple of speakers from the United States State Department, and we also had people who came in from China, both academic and government people, and really hashed this out in a very thoroughgoing way. And I think it's only continued along these same kind of lines since then that the whole package has been a very positive set of developments for Africa. Probably the Belt and Road is the greatest direct input, the greatest source of economic progress, economic development for many African countries. But the presence of ordinary Chinese, many of whom come because of a desire to express friendship, many of whom come because maybe their parents or grandparents even by now had been to Africa as part of Chinese assistance projects. They're drawn to the continent. And as I say, that's not always been a frictionless process, but I think overall that too has contributed to 
to economic advancement, economic development, the growth and flourishing of certain sectors of market economies across the continent. So I think overall, the idea, as you say, I certainly agree with your perspective on the hypocritical sense that one hears in these denunciations of China by the Western powers who presided over the slave economy and then the colonial partition of Africa and its thorough exploitation by the Western powers all through the 19th and half of the 20th century to turn around now and be sort of the self-righteous pointers of fingers at China is yet another instance of them projecting onto others the legacy of their own behavior in the past. So the Belt and Road Initiative, I want to finish up on this and then move to the topic of common prosperity, which is a new theme under Xi Jinping's leadership. I want you to be able to help us understand what that means. It's not the first time in the Chinese leadership have used the term common prosperity, but it now very much is thematic in terms of the, as you put it, the political presentation of the party and of the government. But before we do that, I want to stay with the Belt and Road a little bit more. So the Belt and Road is this vast you know, network of railways and energy pipelines and highways and you know, streamlined border crossings. And it goes to the south It goes into Southeast Asia, to South Asia, to the Indian subcontinent, to Central Asia, into Europe. I mean, it's a huge development. And I want to talk about how the currency is being used, because one of the points of domination for the U.S. since the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, when the U.S. sort of created its vision, when I say the U.S., I mean the U.S. bourgeoisie created its vision of a post-World War II world. There was the creation of the United Nations, where countries were supposedly going to talk through their problems rather than have a third world war. There was the World Bank to finance development. There was the International Monetary Fund. All of these institutions really under the control and domination of the United States, but with the appearance, and not simply the appearance, but of multilateral institutions, again, with the U.S. as the anchor to each of them. But the dollar, the dollar as the world currency, that was decided upon at Bretton Woods. And that gives the United States this amazing advantage over all other countries because other countries have to, through the purchase of goods and services or the exchange of their currency, buy dollars in order to use dollars that they then conduct international trade, like oil, or but almost everything is in dollars. And the U.S. government, unlike the other governments, doesn't have to buy dollars. It can just literally print dollars, or however they are now created on computers. Anyway, what about the concept of China? Is with Belt and Road the idea that all of these different participating countries are using the dollar or are they using now the Chinese currency? Well, that's an evolving situation. And it's not just a matter of the Belt and Road. China has been working very diligently in recent years to develop mechanisms of international financial and monetary interaction that will be independent from, delinked from, if you will, the global dominance of the U.S. dollar. You're absolutely right. The construction of the Bretton Woods order 
and its revision and re-elaboration, you know, after the Nixon years, that put the U.S. dollar at the center of the global economy. All other currencies could be exchanged for the dollar, and exchanges between other currencies were often articulated using the dollar as sort of the unit of measure, you know? And so that meant that international transactions were often monetized or denominated in dollars. And those transactions pass through institutions like the International Bank of Clearance, which is located in New York. And that is what has given the United States the ability to impose economic sanctions wherever it wants around the world. Because any country that wants to make international payments, those payments, when they flow through the United States, which they all have to do because of the Bank of International Settlements, that gives the United States a pressure point where they can say, we're going to block it right here. You know, And so they can put sanctions really wherever they want. Well, China opposes this system of sanctions. China opposes actions that are interferences in the internal affairs of sovereign states. And so they have been working not just on their own behalf. Certainly, they don't like having sanctions imposed on China and on Chinese people. But more broadly, they're opposed to the sanctions regime as a way of pressuring people and manipulating political systems around the world. So they've been developing a number of alternative financial institutions, Asian Development Bank. They have been trying to and have been having some success in having the renminbi, the Chinese currency, become a currency of international exchange and settlement that has been working reasonably well. It still has a ways to go for that to become a fully functioning system. Whether I don't think the renminbi is likely to replace or displace the dollar in the immediate future, certainly within the next decade or two. But I think in the long term, what may happen is that an international monetary order may emerge, which is at least dualistic, if not multicentric, once again, having a few different currencies be part of the system. If China can do that, if China is successful, that would be a huge advance for developing countries and for international exchange and cooperation out from under the hegemonic umbrella of American domination. I want to ask you, Ken, before we get, I keep saying we're going to talk about this, common prosperity, but then I, <laughs> something else occurs to me. And I, the thing that occurs to me is it comes about because I was invited to speak as an anti-war, U.S. anti-war organizer. I'm the national director of the Answer Coalition for a symposium that took place over the last weekend. And it was hosted by people mainly in South Asia and in the Indian subcontinent. And they asked me, what did I think would be the impact of the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan? And what they meant, I talked about it in a general sense, but what they meant is what would happen to Afghanistan? Where would it start to move? Right now, the U.S., as you say, because it controls the international banking system and because you know, the Afghan government's resources were in American banks or in Federal Reserve banks. All of the Afghan government's assets, international assets, are now frozen. The U.S. just took their money, and they can't pay for anything. The lights are going off. They can't pay people who are working in the public sector. They can't pay teachers. They, they can't pay anybody. 
So the question was, will Afghanistan move in the direction of China? Now, the people ask me about that in relationship to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, or sometimes called the Shanghai Pact, which is a Eurasian political, economic, and security alliance that was originally formed, I believe, in 1996 or sometime in the mid-90s, and it included China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, and Tajikistan. And for younger people, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, and Tajikistan were all one country until 1991, and that country was called the Soviet Union. And I believe the Shanghai Cooperation Organization has expanded. But when we think about the Taliban relationship with Pakistan and the China-Pakistan economic corridor and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the fact that the Afghan government, as odious as the Taliban are, if they are going to be a government and they have no money, they have to go somewhere. If the US and the West cut them off, will they lean in the direction of China and will China have a relationship with them? Well, China would certainly be ready, willing, and able to have a relationship with the new government in Afghanistan. And they have expressed that both publicly and I'm sure in diplomatic communications with that new government as it has been being formed over the last few weeks. I think that Afghanistan, that the new leadership in Afghanistan is certainly, they find themselves in rather desperate straits. The collapse of the existing Afghan government was, I think, even more rapid than the Taliban leadership had themselves anticipated. I think they were pretty confident that they were going to wind up in control, but it happened so rapidly. I think that that has been a challenge for them in terms of trying to come to grips with the realities on the ground. And I'm sure that that's going to be a bit of a rocky road for them, made much more problematic by the effective financial embargo that the United States and you know other Western powers are going to maintain. So I think that they find themselves in a very difficult situation. China has the resources to be of assistance. China has expressed itself, as I say, as being willing to do so. And China's motivations, I think, are in some ways very straightforward, but there are some nuances to it. I mean, China doesn't want an unstable Afghanistan on its Western flank. China has a small border with Afghanistan. I think it's only about 46 miles long, but they do have a border with Afghanistan. And of course, more importantly, Afghanistan shares a longer border with Tajikistan. There's a long history of Central Asia running from Samarkand down to Kabul and expansively out from there being one political environment, one sort of a political and economic environment. So, you know, Afghanistan's role, Afghanistan's influence, and I don't mean here like policy influence or something like that, but cultural, religious, their presence, the presence of a Taliban type leadership in Afghanistan that may have certain resonances elsewhere in Central Asia. And we know, of course, that China has concerns about Islamic separatism in Xinjiang. And I think that from China's point of view, if they could develop and maintain a constructive relationship with the new government in Afghanistan, that might serve to reduce some of the tensions that have plagued the political environment in Xinjiang 
And that could be a very positive and healthy contribution to China's ongoing efforts to develop that area, to bring the Islamic communities, the various ethnic groups, Uyghurs and Kazakhs and Uzbeks and Tajiks and all that, into the mainstream of development in China. So I think that China has good motivations that have a number of attributes. And one can hope that a constructive relationship between China and the new government in Afghanistan may emerge. I don't think that's a given. And I don't think that the new government in Afghanistan is itself an entirely cohesive and coherent grouping. I think that there's been some indication of some debates and differences of opinion, shall we say, within the leadership. I mean, I think it would be a very positive development for China to be able to to be of assistance not just to the Taliban, not just to the new government, of course, but to the people of Afghanistan, who are the ones, of course, who find themselves in the most desperate straits. Yeah. In Afghanistan, when the U.S. invaded in 2001 and basically took control of the government, I mean, created its own government, three quarters of the people in Afghanistan did not have electricity. 20 years later, and trillions of dollars later, the situation in Afghanistan is this. Two-thirds of the people don't have electricity. So all of that money, all of that engagement, all of that warfare, most of it carried out in the rural parts or certainly not in Kabul. In other words, where people were already very, very poor, the situation only got worse for them because in addition to not having electricity, they had bombs dropped on them constantly. 15,000 bombs just in 2018, 2019, alone by NATO, US NATO forces. So here we are after 20 years of war, the Taliban come into power and they could potentially be integrated more into what might be called the Chinese sphere of economic and political influence. I mean, it says a lot about world politics where the US thinks, the US always thinks, look, we have the best missiles, we have the biggest bombs, we have all those aircraft carriers, we have satellites, we have everything you need to destroy people. And the impact of their interventions is to push Iraq somewhere else to make Afghanistan perhaps potentially an ally of China. I mean, it's a remarkable demonstration of the vulnerability of an imperial power that you know resides so much on brute force. I think that's a profound insight, and I think that it is a lesson that cuts two ways. On the one hand, American political leadership has demonstrated a remarkable capacity to not learn the lessons of history, to continue to believe that its technological superiority, its capital-intensive mode of warfare, will prevail when from Korea in the 50s to Vietnam in the 60s and 70s to Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and elsewhere in the 21st century, that has been demonstrated over and over again to be a fallacy. So that's a problem on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's exactly as you say, the United States has created and sought to maintain global dominance, a global hegemony, and that has led it into a kind of 
almost, I suppose, a zero tolerance policy on countries that want to in any way follow their own path, be independent, be autonomous. The continuing interventions in Syria, I mean, the list would go on and on. I don't really want to take the time to run down all the places that were still deeply engaged, both overtly and covertly. But it's a testimony to the determination of people around the world to pursue their own courses to pursue their own livelihoods, not always in ways that we as socialists and modernists and materialists would choose to pursue them, but that people do resist imperialism, people do fight against imperialism, and with determination, they can win the battle, although at often just horrific cost. And Afghanistan is the latest example of a country that, you know, we had no business going in in the first place. We should have let the Afghan people resolve their own issues. They may choose a path that will take them in what we would see as a more progressive modernist direction, or they may not. That's what national sovereignty means. And that is not a value that the United States is willing to you know, really embrace in practice, whatever the rhetoric of President Biden at the United Nations might be. All right. Now I'm going to ask you about common prosperity. Okay. At last, at last. Here's the New York Times. Let's use an American bourgeois media source. Warning of income gap, Xi tells China's tycoons to share wealth. As the country's leader prepares for a likely third term, he is promising common prosperity, that's in quotes, to lift farmers and working families into the middle class. Now, Ken, is this like an appeal for philanthropy. Of course, there is a tradition of philanthropy, not only here, but you know, in China, historically. Is it like to demand that the billionaires and the rich do a little bit more to help the common folks? Or is there other elements of common prosperity that point not really to philanthropy, but to income redistribution such that it leads the country in the direction of socialism? Well, I think that, yeah, that there's both. And I think that, once again, Xi Jinping has been pretty clear about the stage at which this process stands at the moment. The Chinese have been talking a fair bit lately about what they call three cycles of distribution, that in the present moment, at the stage of history that China is at at the moment, there are three cycles of distribution that operate within the Chinese economy. One is the market. And the market allocates resources in its own particular way, and it can do a very good job in some ways. It can be very efficient. It can be highly motivational. You know, Marx and Engels sang peons to the creative development of the bourgeois system all the way back in the Communist Manifesto because of that. And that is still something that has been going on in China. The development, the rapid growth of China's productive economy over the last 30 plus years has been a, a lot of that has come from the effects of market activities. So there's the market cycle of distribution. Then there's what they call the secondary cycle, which is the state. And I think that that 
ultimately is the key to the process. The move towards socialism has to be dependent upon the leading role that the state sector plays in the economy, both in terms of things like state-owned enterprises, but also in the way that the government exercises regulatory oversight and in the way that the government can use policy mechanisms like taxation and distribution mechanisms to make a more equitable allocation of social wealth. We can loop back to that in just a minute, but there has been talk now, especially in the last few months, about what they call the tertiary distribution. And that's more like what you referred to and characterized correctly as philanthropy, this idea that those individuals and corporations that have made huge profits that have accumulated wealth, accumulated capital in massive amounts in the process of reform need to understand and need to act on the understanding that they have an obligation to direct some of that wealth which has been accumulated back into the society from which it has been extracted. That's not a basis for a long-term socialist economy. The socialist economy isn't based on rich people being nice and giving back part of the money. But in the transitional stages in this period of a moderately prosperous society, the primary stage of socialist development, the various ways in which it is characterized in Chinese discourse. This is something that right now, the party is being very clear that that's an expectation. And we're seeing figures like Jack Ma and Alibaba, who are pledging up to 15 plus billion dollars in programming for various kinds of social activities. That's a good thing to be going on. That's something that's positive. And it's not on the scale of, you know, I made a hundred billion dollars and I'm going to donate 500 million. It's a significant portion of private wealth that is being solicited, shall we say, for redistribution in more socially valuable ways. But to go back to the secondary allocation, secondary distribution, the state has to be the key to this process. And I think it's here, some of the things that Western coverage, you know, like the Wall Street Journal and others have highlighted are things like the recent tax crackdown on entertainers, okay? And this is portrayed, of course, in the bourgeois media as somehow kind of odd or silly. But these are people who have, in the course of the last 30 years or so, become very, very prominent figures in Chinese society who have accumulated in their own way huge amounts of money and who have evaded taxes, have evaded any kind of social contribution in a material sense. And, you know, the evasion of taxes is illegal. So to call upon those people to pay their taxes, this is the sort of thing that, of course, in America, American politicians, American bourgeois politicians, always love to talk about people paying their fair share. You know, of course, the Republicans don't want anybody rich to pay taxes. The Democrats always like to talk about how rich people have to pay their fair share. And yet, amazingly enough, rich people never do pay their fair share. In China, 
they're putting, you know, putting some muscle behind this so that people who have become rich are going to pay that back, not just as voluntary contributions, but in the form of revenue to the state, which can then be allocated to more, more important social functions. It's a three-pronged approach, but the core of it has to be, and I think will be as time goes forward, is that middle, that what they call the secondary system, the secondary cycle of the state pulling resources into itself and then reallocating those in more socially beneficial and progressive ways. Ken, we're coming to the close, but I want to ask you about China, the government's approach to the Evergrande Group's debt crisis that shook global stock markets in the beginning of this week. It was the biggest you know, momentary contraction or crash in you know many, many months. And I'm looking at Nikkei Asia, the media site. Evergrande debt debacle poses tests for Xi on common prosperity. Chinese leader faces choice of unpopular bailout or potential systemic crisis. Now, let's walk through for the audience real quick what is actually happening here and how both Blackstone and other Western hedge funds have invested heavily even in recent months in China's Evergrande Group, which is in private real estate. Obviously, there are many, many bad loans that can't be repaid. And suddenly the company might you know, be going down like Lehman Brothers went down in 2008. Let me read a couple of sentences and then get your comments. While property developer China Evergrande Group's debt crisis shook global markets, the front page of Tuesday's People Daily newspaper made no mention of the biggest story in Chinese business and finance. The silence of the Communist Party and state-run media on the government's Evergrande response reflects the hard choices confronting President Xi Jinping with his recent emphasis on, quote, common prosperity, close quote. Having set out to redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor, Xi cannot easily resort to a bailout in real estate, a sector that the government has targeted for restrictions on the kind of speculative transactions that only the well-off or well-connected can profit from. Nor can he risk triggering a financial crisis with a Lehman Brothers, that was the biggest bank that crashed, that you know really started the 2008 crisis. He cannot trigger a financial crisis with a Lehman Brothers-like moment ahead of his bid for a third term as the head of the Communist Party next year. And then finally, China's real estate market is a hotbed of dissatisfaction for urban residents struggling with a high cost of living. When authorities eased credit last year to soften the blow of the coronavirus pandemic, they fueled a run-up in property prices. And finally, real estate prices in 50 major cities were 13 times the average annual income in 2020, up from 10 times. So it went from 10 times in 2015 to 13 times the average annual income. Anyway, they're not wrong that it's a dilemma for the Chinese government because as the government did in 2008, it bailed out these companies, these private companies that were going bankrupt so that China wouldn't go the way of the United States in terms of the financial disaster that started on Wall Street. So they protected the private sector 
but doing so now might be interpreted as a redistribution of wealth to the top, to the more affluent rather than to the poor. Yeah, I think the Evergrande situation is, it's fascinating in its own right, and it's fascinating in the way in which the Western you know, financial media have really, have really focused in on this. Of course, that's in part because, as you mentioned, there's considerable exposure to the property development sector on the part of foreign capital. So what happens with Evergrande is a very practical interest to Western finance, which is why the stock markets in the United States took a big plunge earlier this week. And obviously, I don't know what the policy response of the Chinese government is going to be yet. I have my own feelings about the directions in which I would like to see them move, and I have some hope that that might be what they actually do. I think that given the overall course of Xi Jinping's leadership and given the I have to say the overall health of the Chinese economy, particularly of the Chinese state, I think that Evergrande's days may very well be numbered, that China is going to not take the position that this is an organization that's too big to fail. And I think that there's a number of reasons why they might make that choice. One being simply the calculation that what's the message of a bailout? What does that tell ordinary people? And what does it tell other problematic capitals? You know, it's a moral hazard question that I think the Chinese may choose to resolve in a way that goes the opposite direction to what we saw here. And I think also, you know, too big to fail. Well, Perhaps there's an old phrase in Chinese about killing the chicken to warn the monkey that you allow Evergrande to actually fail. You let the market mechanisms play themselves out, and that sends a message. That sends a message that says the state is not here to protect the interests of capital. The state is here you know, to provide an environment in which you may legitimately pursue your activities, but you can't you know, run around wild and engage in all this reckless speculation without having to suffer the consequences. And I think that that's more in line with Xi Jinping's general policy orientation. Obviously, I think the... The silence, relative silence that has surrounded this on the part of state decision-making probably reflects just a very careful deliberative process. You know, it's not something that I think is properly sort of debated in a headline-grabbing way. It's something that's a very serious set of issues that needs to be handled in a very responsible way. And I think that when the leadership has made the decisions about what they're going to do, then those decisions will be both put into practice and announced publicly. But that's something that, that they're going to have to, to figure out the best timing for themselves. We both agree that the Xi Jinping leadership is both an example of continuity, but also an example of change. And that either because China's reached a new stage or because Xi has a particular political and specific and distinctive orientation, China is moving to the left right now. And for those of us on the left, we're so happy. We say that recognizing that all of these contradictions that the Chinese understood would be created by introducing 
a form of state capitalism in the sense that Lenin meant the term when he talked about the NEP, not the state capitalism where the bourgeois state is in charge, but where the proletarian state or the worker state or the worker and peasant state is allowing the development of the market and foreign direct investment and foreign investment generally in order to facilitate technology transfer, to facilitate the economic development of the means of production. We agree that at this moment, compared, say, to 15 years ago, it's a palpable shift to the left. And one of the great hallmarks, again, which is not simply from Xi Jinping's leadership, but you know, happened, culminated during this time period when he is the leader, is the eradication of extreme poverty in China. And I just want to end on this, Ken. Um, the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research has issued a short book, a small pamphlet called Serve the People, the Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. And if you want to find it, if our audience wants to find it, go to their website called www.thetricontinental.org. I don't know if you've seen their pamphlet. This is called Studies on Socialist Construction. It's a really small 60-page, beautiful pamphlet with lots of pictures, very accessible to people who are, quote, not China experts. But it talks about the, the complex way that China took 850 million people, 850 million people who were living in dire poverty. And I think the world standard or definition of dire poverty was living on less than $2 a day and ended that. That was the greatest extreme poverty eradication event anywhere in the world. And a real, a real statement, because at this moment, of course, you know, Americans are getting like medical bills, literally for hundreds of thousands of dollars, because the US government ended the, uh, you know, the, the cushion and coverage for those who had COVID. So people who are like, on intubators and coming out of the hospital, but they no longer have the same government guarantees. They're getting literally bills for $200,000, $250,000. I mean, that's the American government. And here you have a government, you know, where 1.4 billion human beings live, one out of every five human beings live, and they carry out this eradication of extreme poverty, a huge achievement. I'll give you the final word in this segment talking about that. And I don't know if you've read the pamphlet, but I really, really recommend it. Yes. No, I'm, I'm familiar with that publication, and I was happy to be able to hear a presentation that was uh, given on that a few weeks ago by the Tricontinental people. It's a, it's a brilliant story. That's a wonderful presentation of it. And I think that the anti-poverty eradication programs that have been undertaken by China are among the greatest, if not the greatest, testimony to the, the substantive reality of China's quest. You know, Brian, you and I are of the roughly the same generation, and I know that we can both remember back in the mid-1960s when American political leaders announced what they called the war on poverty. 
and there was a lot of fanfare about how this was going to lead to the the eradication of poverty for the American people. And that, of course, has not happened, lo, these many years later. And if anything, for many Americans, things have gotten worse, not just because of COVID and the pandemic, that of course has been a problem, but because of the continued just rampant exploitation of labor by capital, by the accumulation of greater and greater wealth on the part of the 1%. I saw a terrible figure the other day that the three richest men in America own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the American people. So it's, you know, the inequality, the abuse of the economy by private capital here is just horrifying. And poverty persists. And in many parts of the country, including especially here in my state of New Mexico, where many Native American people live far below the poverty line, it's just a shameful story for a country that routinely presents itself as, you know, the wealthiest on earth. China, which has had to struggle against massive, massive challenges in the course of its modern history and has, you know, mobilized its population, built a revolutionary movement that brought the People's Republic to power and has spent the last 72 years pursuing a path of development, which has addressed those issues in ways that the United States never has and until there are fundamental changes here, never will. So I think that thinking about Xi Jinping's leadership, thinking about China today and the left turn, if we want to characterize it that way, it's a very inspirational moment. It's a moment of hope, not without continuing challenges, not without a need for perseverance, not without the necessity of maintaining the struggle and maintaining a correct perspective. But it's a moment of hope. It's a moment where things are moving, I think, in good directions. So that's perhaps thinking about the anti-poverty campaign and the spectacular success that the Chinese people have achieved. Maybe that's a good place for us to draw to a close today. That was Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. Founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. He's a writer and activist with the organization Pivot to Peace. You can read Ken's writings at Monthly Review, Liberation News, Liberation School. Where else, Ken, if people want to find you, find your writings? I mean, I know you have a like an immense, prolific character about your writings. <laughs> Well, I I think that the outlets you've mentioned there, particularly the Monthly Review Online, MR Online, and of course, Liberation School, those are good places to see what I've been putting out lately. So I think that's probably the best places to start. (laughs) All right. We're going to leave it right there. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday with our segment called In the News. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.